0: Good morning, everybody. Uneducated Economist here. Thought I would talk a little bit about that essay on economics, the uh, Richard Cantillon. Cant- Cantillon? i got to learn how to say his name. Anyway, uh very first chapter in that book was about three paragraphs long, and it's describing wealth. And now it's funny, because when, uh, when I read those three chapters, and I thought about it for a little bit, I went around and I asked a bunch of people, I said, what is wealth? Like, when you think of wealth, what do you think of? And it wasn't too far off from what I always kind of thought of wealth as growing up is, you know, somebody with a big house and a nice car and goes on vacation. And just somebody who has this appearance of, you know, being wealthy or you know, like, like having a lot of stuff, like an abundance of items or whatever. But in that uh, chapter in that book, the way the author describes it, the way, he, uh, the way he says it is that wealth is food, conveniences, and pleasures of life. And he leaves it at that, as far as the description of wealth. Now, the way you get wealth is from the land. So labor and land together produces the wealth. And so now I thought about, like, okay, so every time that I have ever thought about wealth, I always thought about, like, people who had house, car, stuff, you know. And I thought, like, even just recently, like, within the last few years, I'm like, how do all these people get this stuff? Like, I have recently got myself out of debt. And I thought, you know, even being out of debt, buying a new car, getting a house, getting the stuff out there is so expensive. You know, and I look out there and I'm like, how are all these people able to do it? Like, how are all these people able to get this wealth? And then I got to thinking more about it a little bit. And I'm like, well, where was like the most wealthy times in my life? Like, when did I feel the most wealthy? And in my early twenties, like I had a pretty decent job. My wife was tending bar, getting paid pretty well, you know, with the tips. And we didn't really want for much. Like, you know, if we wanted something, we'd just go buy it. We had the money, we weren't really in debt. You know, we were buying new cars, but, you know, we could make our bills and, you know, whatever. It was like, there was no, there was no problem. But I didn't save anything. So I think about it. Okay, there was food, the conveniences, pleasures of life. But I didn't really save anything. I didn't have anything from that. So I really didn't acquire any wealth. I was just kind of living wealthy. So a little time goes on and, you know, anyway, I don't want to kind of go through it, but a little time goes on and I end up out in the country in a little dinky house and my wife's not working. We just had our second kid and we have like a little hobby farm farm going, right? Raising chickens, we got a beautiful garden going. The neighbor, he raises pigs and between all of us, we were able to trade for just about anything we wanted. I mean, you know, neighbor was trading bacon for goat's milk. I was, I traded, you know, a chicken for like 50 raspberry starts. It was easy. Like you had this abundance and it was easy to trade for whatever you wanted if you just made the connections. So when it came to food, I mean, I felt incredibly wealthy out there, even though I didn't have a whole lot of money or anything. Even, like, the conveniences of life were pretty easy out there. Like, we didn't really need a bunch of cars or anything. Only, you know, I was the only one working. We only needed really one car. And, you know, the pleasures of life, well, you know, we were just kind of hanging out there enjoying the animals and the garden and stuff. And so, it was just kind of just being there was just nice. So, even though I wasn't bringing in a lot of income, I felt very wealthy at the time. I mean, it didn't seem like I felt wealthy at the time, but now when I look back on it, I was like, man, I wish I had all that good food again. I wish I, you know, had living out there in the country. Yeah, I enjoyed the animals. Like, I I miss it. And I didn't realize how wealthy I was at the time. So now, I think about it some more. And it's like, okay, well, here I finally am, like, completely out of debt. I've cut my bills down to just my living expenses, my wife's car finally took a crap, so she's buying a car, a, a very modest, you know, just a couple of hundred dollar payment a month, and I still am not, like, feeling wealthy, because now I forgo the pleasures of life. Like, I'm trying to save up so that I can buy land, so that I can do labor to acquire wealth. I mean, I'm kind of getting this idea that wealth is not what I have always anticipated to be. You know, wealth is food, conveniences, and the pleasures of life. And that shouldn't be that hard to get. So now I'm thinking a little differently than I had before. Because I have the ability to have those three things pretty easily. See, somebody told me a while back, it was just like, you know, the path to happiness and wealth is really easy, either require, you know, earn more or require less. And it was just like, so here I have been trying to earn all this, earn more and require less at the same time while foregoing the pleasures of life. Like, you know, I mean, I have gone on vacation recently, but, you know, for a long time I've been holding back on a lot of these things that I could be doing that would be a lot more pleasurable for everybody, you know, in my family. But, you know, I'm trying to save. So now... I'm realizing something, too, is that it's not so much about having stuff or, like, you know, having, like, a new Corvette, for example. Like, if you don't need a Corvette, then you're a Corvette richer, right? But having the ability to go out and buy that Corvette, I think that's really where it's at. See, having the ability to do something is just as good as having it. You see what I'm saying? So wealth, food, conveniences, and pleasures of life. And I look at the people out there who appear to have that wealth. They have the fancy cars. They have the food. They have, you know, all the pleasures of life that I feel like I'm foregoing on. And they're experiencing. But then I look at that and I think to myself, you know, their wealth is a burden. And that's not wealth. So all those conveniences, those pleasures of life, the food that they're eating, everything that they give this appearance of of wealth is little more than them enslaving themselves with the burden of requiring them to provide a payment to that wealth. That's no wealth at all. See, wealth was living out there in the country, raising the food, having the conveniences of everything you needed right there on your little plot of land. That's wealth. You know, I think about this a little bit more every day. You know, what is it that we're all working towards? Why are we working so hard towards something? You know, what is it that we're working towards? What is it that our lives are supposed to be like once we get there? Anyway, don't want to get too deep into it, but thought a little too much about that first chapter, didn't I? Okay, anyway, uneducated economist, you guys let me know. Good afternoon, everybody, uneducated economist here. Thought I'd talk a little bit more about that uh, essay on economic theory written by um, Cantillon, if I said that right. Anyway, this uh, economic theory, essay on economic theory, was written back in the 1700s. And it's amazing, the more I read, the more I see how prevalent the thoughts were, like the the deep-rooted thoughts inside of that essay, and how they relate to what's going on today. Um, you know, we did, the first chapter we talked about wealth. In the second chapter, the author is talking about human society. And now, you know, you gotta think, this is the 1700s when he wrote this, so, things were a lot different back then. You know, I mean, he talks about kings and princes and, you know, taking over lands and stuff like that, you know, things that you don't typically hear about today. Um, But still the idea about what happens with the land, I thought was still pretty interesting because the way the, the way the chapter is described is that human societies are based on a distribution of property rights. And that this distribution of property rights is necessarily unequal. And that it's ultimately up to the property owner to decide what it is that they want to do with that property. And now I got to thinking about the chapter after I read it because the way he basically describes it is is that all property is going to end up in the hands of just a few. It will be like a necessary event that takes place. And I think about that, it's like, it's not necessarily a necessary, like, you know, like, governments have to make it happen. It's a necessary, like, they don't have any other choice. It's going to happen. Like, the people don't have any other choice. And so the way he describes it is, is like, even if you took a, a particular group of people and you distributed the property up amongst them evenly, like, everybody gets exactly the same proportion. Give it some time. And that property will concentrate into the hands of just a few. And it'll be in just a handful of, you know, people will end up owning the majority of the property. And he says this will happen because basically if you think about it, as families grow, you may have somebody who has seven kids. And when he dies to leave his property to his seven kids, he will not be able to leave a portion as big as he has to each of his kids. So they will end up with less property than their father had. Or you may have somebody who doesn't have any children. And when they pass away, they leave their property to somebody who doesn't need property. And they end up with a concentration or, you know, an excess amount of property. Or you may find people who just don't want their property. They'd rather sell their property off. So you can see there's many ways that this concentration of property could happen. Now, the other thing that I found interesting inside of the the chapter is that the author talks about what it is that the property owner is going to do with this property. Now it's up to them to do whatever they want. And now what he describes inside the uh, inside the the essay is like, if the property owner is big into wine, drinking wine, then he'll probably have a lot of vineyards. But the thing about having vineyards are is that he's not going to do it himself and that he would have to have like a crew of people doing it. And in order to have a crew of people doing it, part of his property is going to have to be dedicated for that crew of people. And that some of his property is also going to have to go towards the things that that crew of people want. Like, he might be into vineyards and wine and not really care about horses, but the people who are tending the work and doing the work, they may be in the horses. And therefore, part of his land would have to go to pastures. If the land was big enough and you think about it, people would be able to say rent land from the property owner to do their own business with and you can see how the system of taxes would become would start and be created from this so it's really interesting to think about the concentration of property and how this is a necessary to get into the hands of a few like i said just kind of naturally occurring and i think about like right now where i hear about how real estate is concentrating into the hands of just a few and it and I think about like even if you were to attempt to redistribute the wealth eventually it would end up happening again no matter what you do it's a very interesting thought it was just like either you're the property owner who is in charge of everything that happens on your property or you rent your property to be in charge of everything that happens on your property or you choose not to have any of that and you work for the person who's on that property and that's ultimately what property rights do I don't know interesting one, a little on the boring side but I still thought it was kind of unique uneducated economist, you guys let me know Good morning, everybody uneducated economist here. So I thought I would do another video on that essay on economic theory written by Cantillon back in the 1700s. And it's pretty good stuff. You think about like the 1700s, they didn't have anything of the modern conveniences like we have today. And their economy was much different. But some of the ideas that Cantillon puts into this essay still relate very much to today. And the third chapter of this um, essay is titled Villages. And it's pretty good. When I first read it, I'm like, yeah, this really doesn't relate to today. Because in this chapter, he's basically saying that these villages are little tight-knit communities will be inhabitants that are suitable for the land. I don't know if I quite said that right, but the way he kind of relates it is that if the land is suitable for sheep herding, then the inhabitants of that are probably not going to be a very robust, you know, giant community because really you don't need a whole lot of people to tend to the sheep. To to, into the flock of sheep, so that community is going to be fairly small, and it's only going to be suitable for what the land can provide for the inhabitants within that village. And so, I think about that comparatively to today. Now, today we have a lot more like communications. We've got transportations. We got a lot of things that are so different from back in the seventeen hundreds that it doesn't seem like this village chapter quite applies in the same same context as today because of our advanced technologies. But then I got to thinking about it a little bit and it was just like, no, it really does still kind of, you know, have some, some merit today because I was thinking about like in the, in the essay, he's talking about like what the village would be like for the inhabitants. Okay. So like if the inhabitants are, you know, the wealthy kind, who live there, then you're probably going to have a lot of things that are geared towards the servants of those wealthy people. I don't know if I said that quite right, but basically if you have a lot of money sitting in that particular area and you have a lot of people who are serving those wealthy people, then you're going to need a community that also provides for the servants of those people. Okay. Now you got to think this is the 1700s. So using the term servants is kind of weird, but that's kind of what, you know, what he was getting at. in as far as, as far as, you know, the village goes. So I think about my little town right here and we're a major logging and fishing community. And so like we have canneries, we have like, uh, mills. We have a lot of things that deal with processing the, the logs, from the land and the fish from the sea. So we are kind of like a village within ourselves here that have to have other factors coming into it. Like you have to have mechanics to work on all the logging equipment and the fishing equipment. You have to have like, you know, places that, like I said, the canneries to process, you have to have transportation to get the product away from here. There's a lot of things that have to come together in order to build this logging and fishing community. And I got to thinking, I was just like, well, yeah, but there's a lot of people who live in this village who don't work here. In fact, I heard of somebody who just left this area, moved all the way over to Asia somewhere, like Taiwan or something, and now remotely works back here in Astoria again. And so I think about it, it's just like, yeah, this village concept doesn't quite play into the same realms as today because we have all this like remote working and transportation and easy access to communication, things that just didn't exist back in the day. But then I think, okay, if this village right here provides for the inhabitants, what is it that's here that's providing for the inhabitants? And that's when it dawned on me. I know this sounds kind of confusing. I'm rambling a little bit. But this is when it dawned on me about how this village chapter still plays very much into, into modern times. And that is, is that my community here has grown immensely large population of retired folks. And it dawned on me after reading this village why it is that we have such a large like medical district growing here in Astoria. I remember when I was in high school, we had pretty much the hospital and another like medical office and they were pretty small and not a whole lot of uh, buildings like medical centers like cancer treatments or dialysis or anything like that. Now this town Astoria is filled with a lot, a lot of medical field type buildings i mean brand new ones and it just amazes to me it was amazing me. i'm like why are we growing so big with this medical district here in astoria and then it dawned on me it's because we have so many retirees and there's going to be a demand for it so the village concept still very much plays into into modern economics and you know, I think about, like, all the smaller stuff that goes along with it. It's not just the village, like, growing to be suitable. Like, you know, the, the things that are the businesses within the in the village growing suitable for the inhabitants. But then also all the sub, like, jobs that come from it. You know, like I said, like, when you're thinking about the fishing, you got all the people who, who process the fish, who transport the fish. Same thing with the logging, you know. All the people who are, like... Logging mechanics, the logging equipment, the, you know, even like the, the gear itself that the loggers wear, like, you know, it's a, it's a specialized gear, you know, cork boots are not really used for anything other than logging, right? Cork boots are these big heavy work boots with spikes on the bottom. So you can run around on the logs without slipping. I mean, these, this type of stuff doesn't exist really in anywhere else. Like you're not going to go to Vegas and find logging equipment, right? You know, it only exists in places where they log. And so you have to have a village that's suitable for the for the uh, for the products that come from that area and that's what I thought was interesting is to think that this medical district is building a facility that is suitable for the inhabitants because we have so many retirees here at least that's the conclusion that I came from um, What else did I want to add in on that? I don't know there was something else I wanted to talk about that, but uh. I guess I can't remember what it was. Oh, well. Anyway, um, I guess I'll leave it at that. Uneducated Economist. You guys let me know. Good afternoon, everybody. Uneducated Economist here. thought I'd cover another one of those chapters out of uh, Cantillon's essay of Economic Theory. Now, we have to remember that this was written back in the 1700s, so it's really kind of hard to relate some of these um, thoughts into present-day you know, use, but really a lot of the deep-rooted economic theories that he has still apply today. Now, the fourth chapter in this, we've already covered the first three, the fourth chapter is Market Village. Now, the the previous chapter was talking about the village and how the village is basically going to be suitable for the size of the inhabitants to the, to the land that it's being used for. Did I say that right? So the way he equates it down there is that if the land is being used for sheep herding then the size of the village probably wow it's really starting to come down the the size of the village is probably not going to be that big considering that you do not need a vast amount of people to support the village of sheep herders and then um, I kind of related it down to like a fishing village where in a fishing village you're going to need a lot more people in there you're going to need like you know Shipwrights to build boats, people who build nets, you're going to need people who process the fish. There's going to be a lot more things going on inside of that particular village than it would be like a sheep herding village. And that's what he was kind of describing in that that chapter 3. Now in chapter 4 he's talking about a market village. And now this is like a centrally located village where people from the surrounding villages would bring their goods to try and sell once or twice a week. And now I kind of think about that. I was just like, well, these don't really exist anymore. We don't have this going on because, you know, the way we ship goods, the way we communicate transfers of orders and stuff like that, we really don't have to like gather in a central location to try and sell our stuff. Like, you know, back in the day you would have to take like, you know, if you were a merchant who was gonna try and sell, you know, uh, like the wool, for example, you would go to all the villages that sold wool and you would have to buy their wool from them. Each village wouldn't know what to charge because they're not sure what the uh, next merchant is going to pay. And then the merchant doesn't know exactly what to pay because he wouldn't know what the next village would be willing to, to take for their wool. So it was a very you know cumbersome way of trying to transfer the wool into the rest of the communities that would need it, all the rest of the villages. But if you brought them all to a market village, a centrally located place, then everybody could then figure out, okay, how much you sell the wool for, like the biggest buyers and sellers of wool would essentially establish the price. And then everybody else along the way would kind of follow in saying, okay, well, this is what most of it is going for. And so the idea that doesn't really exist today, but then I thought about it for a little bit, you know, and I thought, well, it kind of does. It kind of does when you think about farmers markets, like that's one of the rare places that people actually come to to try and sell their their produce from like the surrounding areas. So that is kind of like an example of the market village in a way that, you know, Cantillon is trying to explain inside of his uh, inside of his essay here. But then I got to thinking about it It was just like, well, if we just applied a little bit of technology to that theory, then it does really kind of play out because if you think about like the Facebook marketplace this is like one of I'm not I'm not a big fan of Facebook right like I mean I hardly ever ever touch it the only time I ever use Facebook is more for the messenger convenience because everybody in the community here uses messenger so if you wanted to talk to somebody that you don't necessarily have their contact information most likely they're on messenger Facebook messenger so I found Facebook is almost a necessity if you just want to be part of this community and you just want to communicate with people that you know but you don't necessarily have their contact information. But the marketplace program that's on Facebook is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Like what I one thing that I I like and I'm a little worried about sometimes when I when I talk around my device is that when I talk about a certain thing like for example, the other day we were talking about Burt Reynolds, and all of a sudden Burt Reynolds, like, articles started coming up in my Google feed. Well, something similar happens with Facebook as well. And my dad, he wanted to get, he just, he, he hasn't just moved. He lives along a lake, and he was like, you know, kid, I would really like a canoe, you know, so, you know, you and the boys and, you know, whatever, when you come out here, we would have a canoe. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll keep an eye out for a canoe. Sure enough, it pops up on Facebook, because I'm sure Facebook heard our conversation talking about a canoe, and it was like, hey, canoe, you looking for canoe? Marketplace program has a canoe. Isn't that awesome? So very convenient, also kind of scary. But then I got to thinking about that marketplace program, and I thought, man, that really applies to Cantillon's theory. Because really, this marketplace program is the market village now. And people like, I was building benches a a long time ago. I was just building simple benches and selling for like 40 bucks. I had built some for an event and I sold them and then people were like, "Hey, can you build more?" And so I built a few more. I was selling them a marketplace program. That's kind of an example of a way to bring your goods to the market like a market village but more or less using the technology of it. So, really calling it marketplace is really just like an example of this market village brought up to like the modern day technology. And then of course, you know, all the rest of them out there like Craigslist and whatnot are also, you know, examples of it, but you know, I just kind of thought about that. When I after I read uh, after I read the chapter because the chapters are only like four four paragraphs long they're not very long you know when we get deeper into the essay I'm sure it's gonna get a lot a lot more intense but anyway wanted to share that one with you because I want to keep this one going this essay going and I probably should do like more than just one of these a week I should probably do like two or three of them just so it doesn't take us like a year to get through this essay you know? anyway um, I will also start a playlist for this as well um I am really bad about the playlist down there they are so out of date and so like just not with it I'm thinking about deleting all those playlists I have down there because they really or except for maybe the fed speech one that one was pretty pretty good I thought but I'll start a new playlist just for this Cantillon uh essay and then that way they're all you know grouped together instead of trying to find them because that would be impossible through all the videos that I have okay uh uneducated economist do you guys let me know Good morning, everybody. Uneducated economist here. Thought I'd cover another one of those chapters out of uh, Cantillon's essay on economic theory. Now, this is the uh, essay that was written back in the 1700s, and it's really interesting to read this uh, to read this essay, especially considering how long ago it was written, comparatively to the technologies and the way things are done today. But yet, some of the deep-rooted like economic theories that are in this. Uh, in this essay, are still prevalent today, and it's fun to think about some of the things that uh, Cantillon wrote back in the day, and then compare them to what's going on today. Now, in chapter five, he's talking about cities. In the previous chapters, he had talked about villages, market villages, and now he's talking about cities. And uh, he has also talked about, <clears throat> excuse me, property owners and wealth. And it's interesting when you when you think about these things as it leads up because. The cities are pretty much where the property owners reside. And in these cities are all the things that the property owner would want. Like all the conveniences, all the food, all the enjoyments and pleasures that the property owners would want for their lives. I mean, you know, you don't want to go and just sit in misery. You go and enjoy yourselves. And when you're in the city, that's where all the conveniences are. So all the, all the like pleasures of life, all the conveniences, all the food, everything gets concentrated into the cities. And only the, well not only, but the wealthiest property owners reside in the city. Now the property owners who are like, I would say like the, not the lesser property owners, but the ones who have less property, who have that property closer to the city would live within those cities. But Those who have that same amount of property that's farther away from the city probably wouldn't end up making it to the city as far as living there unless they had a lot of property. And this is the what Cantillon, now follow me here because I know this is a little confusing, but this is the way Cantillon kind of describes it is that transportation in the distance that they have to go really determines or in how much they have really determines on how many people would live in the city or how far away their property would be so distance was really a key factor inside of how big these cities are where they're located the surrounding villages and how well these transportations took place and so if you were a very wealthy property owner who had lots of property out there being in the city was no big deal but if you just had a little bit of property and it was far away from the city living in the city was very was more difficult for you You wouldn't be able to enjoy all those conveniences and pleasures because the transportation cost of everything that, you know, that was involved as far as bringing your properties, you know, output to, to market, I guess is the easiest way to explain it. So I think about today, like how these cities are are built and like not really built because they're just kind of just grow, right? I mean, you have small areas that just kind of get bigger and bigger. And I think about like small areas that I remember as a kid driving past and seem, they like, they seem so like sparse, like there wasn't really nothing around there, it was just like farmlands and now you drive through and it's just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how many people are here. Santa Maria is one of them. I mean, 40 years ago, if you drove through Santa Maria, it was like, it was just, just farm. It was just, that's it. It was just farms but now you drive through Santa Maria and it's just like, there's, I don't even know hundreds of thousands of people there. I'm just like, I, it just, I remember like, I hadn't been there in a long time and I'm like, wow, what a change, you know, to see, you know, how big these things got. And of course, you know, 40 years of population growth too. And especially in California where that's, you know, one of the most densest populations, you know, in the country, it's no surprise that you would have such a population growth. Now, I think about like my little city here of Astoria, which really doesn't grow very much because we just don't have a lot of room to expand. I mean, we're kind of like limited on space, we're limited on like, you know, utilities as far as being able to handle more housing and stuff like that. We can't just all of a sudden just throw in ten thousand houses in our area. We just simply can't support that, you know. But you know, other areas it's you know, very well supported that you can you can do something like that. And then it's also like You got to think like how well the transportation, like if you could take a ship, like we have a ship that goes up to Portland, Portland's a much bigger area because it's like right there at the I-5 corridor. So you can take a freighter like right to Portland and then boom, you're off heading off to many other cities to transfer your goods. If you were to stop here in Astoria, then you'd have to rail it to Portland before you would be able to hit that I-5 corridor. So it would make sense that Portland would be much bigger than Astoria. It has plenty of room to grow. Well, not plenty of room to grow, but it, it, you know, it had bigger area to grow, more links to the surrounding areas. So the property owners around there would want to concentrate their goods into Portland in order to distribute them out again. And so I think about that. Like Astoria was one of the most popular places here at one time because of its distribution uh, capabilities. You know, it was a, it was a fur trading post and all around here were, I mean, you know, it was the beaver state. So like, you know, trapping beaver, trapping mink, trapping everything around here was like a very popular, you know, business. And John Jacob Astor established the Ast you know, Astoria as a fur trading post because of the distribution of it. And that's how it became so popular. Um, you know, and you've got to think, like, you know, there's two places in the country on each end, both named Astoria after them for pretty much the same reasons. But um, anyway, I found that to be a pretty interesting article, and that was my thoughts about it. And I thought I would share it with you this morning. All right. Uneducated economist, you guys let me know. Good evening, everybody. Uneducated economist here. Man, another absolute beautiful evening in Astoria. Look at this. Thought I'd talk a little bit more about Cantillon's essay on economic theory. And, uh, it's chapter six talking about capital cities. And I really love this essay. It's take, he wrote this back in the 1700s, but really a lot of the stuff that he talks about, even from, you know, hundreds of years ago, really still apply today. And when he's talking about capital cities, he really describes it in just two paragraphs. And so it's very simply described as like the place where government resides, where, um, the wealthiest or the largest landowners are or property owners is is how he describes it and that these capital cities is like where the center of fashion and uh education and it's like the center of like where all like commerce and the land takes place it's where you know the largest of all cities so when he says capital cities i don't know if he's necessarily talking about like the capital like you know say, the capital of the state or something like that where government would be, you know, really involved. But just talking about really large cities. I mean, he does mention government in there, but I'm thinking he's just talking about really large cities in general. And now, something interesting that he does uh, say inside of this essay, inside of the second paragraph in, in this chapter, is he's talking about uh, he's talking about the oh gosh, how does he put it? The sovereign leaders and noble kings or kings, leaving that particular city and moving to another city is to the detriment of the first city that they left and to the benefit of the other city because it's going to drag all the noblemen and everybody else who participates in the commerce that the, you know, basically the rich put out there. So if they move to another city, then all the business kind of moves with it to go and try and chase that money. So I thought about that a little bit. I'm thinking, man, that really sounds like when corporations pack up and leave. Like, you think about Michigan when all of a sudden, like, there was no cars to be built and, you know, everybody is just, like, you know, crying. What was that? Detroit, you know? Like, there was a lot of films and stuff like that talking about it. So you think about, like, when everybody kind of picks up and leaves, how much commerce that goes with it. And it's interesting how... Cantillon, when he's describing the capital cities, includes that particular concept within the idea of what a capital city is, because it's it it he almost puts it in there as like a warning to to cities. It's just like you know you grow, but just think about it. If these guys or this particular group leave, you're done. You know, it's to the detriment of you guys. Anyway, thought that was pretty interesting, and I will leave a link in the description for the. Uh, for the essay so you can, guys can go and check it out yourself. Uh, I haven't put the playlist together yet but I will put the playlist together so that you can go and check out all the different uh, chapters in one in one playlist instead of having to go and search through all my videos to try and find them. So anyway, I'm just going to hang out and just let the video roll here for a little bit so you guys can watch the sunset and uh, good evening everybody, uneducated economists you guys let me know. Good morning, everybody. Uneducated Economist here. I thought I'd do another chapter of Cantillon's essay on economic theory. This is chapter seven, and it's titled The labor of the plowman is of less value than that of the artesian. And um, I love these uh, the, this essay. It's written back in the 1700s, but a lot of what he is saying still applies today. And what he is saying that the labor of the plowman is of less value than that of the artesian, he goes on to explain it like the plowman You know, you got to think back in the day, the plowman was like the unskilled labor. Didn't take a whole lot of training, couldn't really screw it up. At the end of the day, just about anybody could do it. So like being a plowman was like the basis of all like unskilled jobs. But then if you can imagine like a carpenter back in the day, this was a unique position. Like you had to have special training and understanding, experience in order to be like real good at being a carpenter and getting paid for it. Then, you know, you were you were obviously going to have to get paid more than if you were going to be a plowman or than the plowman would get paid just because there's a limited amount of carpenters out there. So what Cantillon goes on to explain is, is that the, um, the efforts of training or the skills going into an individual, that burden has to be shifted to someplace and the reward for it has to be more than what that burden is so if you are a plowman and you want something better for your kids and you're plowing the earth to pay for somebody to go to college like your children then whatever it is that skill that your child learns must pay more than being a plowman or else the plowman would never do it you see what Cantillon is trying to get at here and then also like if it's an apprenticeship program like I need help with carpentry, but I don't have anybody to help me. So I'm gonna show somebody how to be a carpenter. There is a time and cost associated with that before the person can actually get to the point where their skills are now you know, beneficial to you. So that burden is shifted to somewhere and then once that training has happened, that's when the profitability comes in. So if you have a skill that is unique then it will necessarily pay more than a skill that anybody can do. But he also went on to say that, like, not like it's easy for, say, somebody to train their children. Like, you know, okay, well, I'm gonna be a carpenter, I'm gonna teach my son to be a carpenter, which is fine so long as the area doesn't have a lot of carpenters in it. But if everybody in the area is a carpenter, then there's no point in training your kid to be a carpenter because your kid's not gonna be in any kind of benefit. By having this skill that everybody else already has, might as well be a plowman. Right. Okay, so I think about that when I think about degrees, you know, and how many degrees that people have. But then also it's really hard for a lot of people to who are starting off at this like plowman position. Right? You're gonna you're gonna be like a plowman doesn't really expand. Like if you plow the earth and that's all you do, that's all you'll ever do. But if you're a carpenter, the first thing you're probably going to end up doing is cleaning up and doing a bunch of laboring stuff that the carpenters don't want to do. And this is something that I experienced as a foreman on a job site. We, you know, we had the um, we had our crew. It was a fairly new crew, so they didn't all really work together yet. You know, it only been together for a few weeks. You have your laborers, you have your carpenters, and being the foreman of the job site, my job is to make sure that the project is in a continual state of progression. Like there is constant production taking place. Part of that is having a steady flow of materials going to the carpenters. Now, when I went to the laborers on this particular day that I was thinking of, I told them, I said, Hey, I went to one of them. I said, Hey man, go get everybody, get this plywood packed up to the second floor. Right. I'm going to go up onto the roof. And as I'm running up there, I hear him say, well, you know, it'd be a lot easier if we all did this. And I said, yeah, just get it up here, right? And he kind of threw a little bit of a fit about it. So I had to go down and explain to him. I said, listen, man. I said, this project needs a steady flow of materials taking place. I said, you and your buddy need to make that plywood go to Dan. Dan needs to cut it and hand it up to me so that I could be nailing it down. And this is the way that it needs to go from now on. Do you understand that? You're being, you're being paid $16 an hour to do labor. These guys are being paid $28 an hour to do carpentry. I am not paying them or the boss. I'm not me. I wouldn't give a shit. I wasn't paying anything. But the boss does not want to pay $28 an hour for guys to move plywood. He wants to pay $28 an hour to see guys nail plywood down. I said, so you need to move this stuff because that is your job. That's yours and I forget the other guy's name. But that's your guys' job. You do that. Man, did he have an attitude, but he got that plywood packed fast, right? He was power mad about it. And he, him and his buddy, they had that plywood packed up there right away. I had him do a few other things, and I th- said to him, I said, well, man, if you're done with that, cut that sheet of plywood. Get a saw up here and cut that thing in half for me. So next thing you know, he was cutting a few sheets with Dan. Him and Dan were cutting his plywood up, handing it up, and I said, well, you know what? Even better yet, why don't you grab a nail gun and you go over there and start nailing the sheathing off that we have tacked down over on the other side of the roof. So next thing you know over there, tack, 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 tack. At the end of the day, I told them, I said, you keep this up and you keep that plywood and the materials moved as much as you have, then you'll be cutting a lot more lumber and you'll be tacking it down in place. You'll be nailing it into place. Once you kind of understood that concept, The material, as soon as it hit the ground, it was in place. Like, he knew what was showing up before it showed up. Like, he, he would ask about it. He was like, what are we doing today? What's going on? And he would have that material move so quickly and so efficiently that he was there ready with his saw and his nail guns, ready to do work. And I was like, okay, this is a guy who wants to learn. He finally figured it out. So about, I don't know, six months later, he went from making $16 an hour to $22 an hour and he was in charge of telling people where to put the plywood and where to pack the lumber to. A Little bit more time goes on and he's making $25 an hour and we were getting laid off. I went off to a lumber yard. I don't know what the other guys did and he says, I'm taking the skills and I'm gonna go do something with it. And he started building decks for people and fences. He painted houses the guy took the skills that he learned over the course of six months and started making money with it. You know, it just took a little bit of time, a little bit of effort, and a little bit of understanding for him to kind of get it and know that once he got this training, then he could do something with it. But in order to get the training, he had to do the labor first. You can't go... I mean, you can. You can pay somebody to show you or... Somebody can take on effort saying I'll take a loss in order to show you or you just learn bit by bit by being on the job. So I think about that a lot. Like people say, they say all the time, it's like this job doesn't pay enough. And it was just like, of course, this job doesn't pay. No job pays enough. Even the job that's ahead of this one, like the, you know, getting an advancement, that job won't pay enough. I mean, the whole point of even working hard so that you can get up there is so that you can continually try and get more money. I mean, nothing pays enough. Never in the history of time did anything that anybody has ever done ever paid enough. I mean, it's like, I don't even understand when people say, yeah, if they paid me more. I was like, that don't make no sense. Go to work, work hard, work your way up. Yeah, you're going to have to take on a lot more responsibility. Responsibility that isn't worth it, but you'll be paid more. I don't know what you're asking for. Anyway. Those are my thoughts. Uneducated Economist, you guys let me know. Good afternoon, everybody. Uneducated Economist here. Thought I'd cover another chapter out of Cantillon's essay on economic theory. This is chapter 8. Some artisans earn more, others less, according to the different cases and circumstances. Now, before I get started, artisans, artisans. I didn't realize those were two different words. I thought it was a potato potato kind of thing, but apparently uh, artisans is not even close to the same thing as an artesian. And I think probably what threw me off is that I've heard the term artesian bread, and I guess that's wrong too, it's artisans bread. But I went around and I asked a bunch of people, and they were just as confused about that as I was. So I know I'm not the only one, but I do wanna thank you guys for correcting me on my phrasing of artisans, it's not artesian's. And I guess, you know, you learn something new every day. So anyway, chapter 8. Some artisans earn more, others less, according to the different cases and circumstances. Now, the way Cantillon breaks this down. Now, we got to remember, Cantillon wrote this essay back in the 1700s. So, even though it's talking about, like, tailors and plowmen and stuff that we really don't think of, like, common everyday jobs nowadays. The deep-rooted thoughts that he has in this essay still apply today. So, it's... It's pretty interesting to to read through some of these things now this chapter some artisans earn more others less according to the different cases and circumstances he he relates it down to to tailors like if you have two tailors in a village and he says like one tailor may be earning more than the other tailor would even though they're both providing like clothing for the villagers one tailor may be like better at advertising or maybe producing like higher quality clothing or they're more durable maybe has, like, better fashion to it, like, they're more up-to-date, and the villagers think the uh, think the clothing that one tailor makes is, you know, a little bit more stylish than the other one, so they're willing to pay a little bit higher price to that, that tailor, or he's willing, or he's able to charge a higher price for it because of these, you know, certain reasons that get involved. But, say, for example, like, there's two tailors in the village, they both make equally quality clothes, and there's no difference in it, they both charge the same amount. Well, what if one tailor dies, like, You know, all of a sudden, all these villagers are relying on one tailor and now he's overwhelmed with work. He could charge pretty much as much as he wants until the villagers say, you know what? I'm going to go over to the next village over because they have two village, two tailors over in that village. And it, it would be cost conducive to me to go over there and buy my clothing from him because you're charging too much. So that could be a reason why a tailor would be making more at this village as opposed to, say, you know, the village over. But then he also talks about like the skill sets, like even though you, you have two carpenters on, on a job site, one of them might be a finished carpenter, the other one's a framing carpenter. Well, the finished carpenter most likely is going to be getting paid more than the fin- framing carpenter will because the finished carpenter is just that. They have the finished product. They has to be perfect. Nothing about it can be incorrect. So they have to be really good at what they do and very precise framing carpentry well you know i mean there's good framers out there but for the most part if it's plumb level and square that's all you really need out of it there are some framers who do really nice clean tight cuts and you know everything looks really good but it all essentially gets covered up so it doesn't matter what it really what it looks like so long as it's plumb level and square so that might be a reason why one carpenter would be earning more than the other ones because they have a different set of skills but then also risk is involved and now I think about this one is because I remember a buddy of mine one time got a job, a temporary job working on a bridge crew. And he was getting paid to paint rivets, you know? And that's what he did all day long was just go around. Each rivet that they replaced, he painted it up with this green paint. And he was paid $36 an hour to just sit there and paint this. And now I thought, man, why in the world would you be paid $36 an hour to paint rivets well it's because it's on a bridge like the whole day you're at risk so granted the bridge that he was on if you fell like you know and most likely you weren't going to die you would hit the water but like if he was working on the Megler bridge that's a bridge that if you fell off of most likely you're not going to live so you know Being on a bridge is like a very dangerous environment. So it would necessarily pay a higher price to the people who are working there than say somebody who was standing on the ground painting rivets, right? So if there's more risk, there's more reward. And that goes for a lot of stuff. I mean, the higher the risk, the better reward that comes with it. So not only is it risk reward, it's skill set, And then it's also just happens to be the circumstances in which you're in. Like I said, the villager who happened to have the other tailor Pass away on them is now all of a sudden just loaded with work and can charge as much as they want. So circumstances, skill sets, and risk are all part of like the reason why one art artisan <laughs> would be um, would earn more and others less. So anyway, um, that's it for that one. Uneducated economist, you guys let me know. Oh, before I let you go, I wanted to um, to let you guys know we have the podcast started and up and running. We also have the website. We're starting to post more stuff back on the website again. So if you're interested in the Uneducated Economist podcast, go over to the uneducatedeconomist.com and you can find the podcast link there. Um, We are also posting on more social media. So if you're into Twitter or Facebook or any of those other places, you can certainly find our videos being posted on all the uh, different social media sites. And then I also want to give a great big thank you to everybody who has been and stayed and continues to be the a member of the Patreon group. Thank you guys so much. I so appreciate that. I have slacked off over the last few months on posting on Patreon, and yet you guys still continue to be a member of the Patreon group. And I cannot thank you enough for all the support that you guys are giving me. So one of the things that I wanted to let you guys know is that I'm going to try and do more uneducated economist articles, I'm going to call them un-ed originals. I will post those on my website, but before I post them to the website, I'm going to give the Patreon group a 24 hours, say 48 hour shot at those for a little reward for being a member of the Patreon group. So, anyway, um, if you don't want to be a member of the Patreon, no problem. They're get, they'll get posted over on the website. I just want to give those guys a little bit earlier access as a reward for, for doing that for me, for supporting the channel. So, anyway, um wanted to give you guys those updates, and I think that'll do it. All right, Uneducated Economist, you let me know. Good evening, everybody. Uneducated Economist here. I thought I'd cover another chapter out of Cantillon's essay on Economic Theory, and this is Chapter 9. And this is pretty interesting. It's uh, Let's see, it's titled like this. The number of laborers, artisans, and others who work in the, in the state is naturally proportioned to the demand for them. And now this is really interesting when you, read this, uh, when you read this chapter. Of course, they're all really interesting to me. I guess I say that every time. But the very first paragraph really nails you pretty hard. I mean, when you read it, you're like, whoa. I mean, that's pretty tough. And what he's talking about is the number of villagers or the the number of farm laborers within a village is set. Like there's only so much because the village can only accept and handle a certain amount of farm laborers. There's a demand form. And once that demand is met, the other farm laborers who are in the village would either need to leave or suffer. So this is what it comes down to. He kind of describes it like, if a farm, if a particular village has several farm laborers who have sons, and they train those sons to be farm laborers, some of those sons can be successors, like they can replace their father, but the other ones are going to have to leave. If they don't leave, or if they can't find work or trade or something, then they have to stay with their father where they'll live a life of poverty, and they'll never have kids, they'll never marry because they can't afford to do it. And if they do have mar- get married and have kids, they're... Children will soon starve along with their parents because that's the way it works in France in the 1700s. So now I thought about that. and I'm like, whoa, man, talk about like a life where if you don't work, you don't eat like people who complain about like they don't pay me enough. Like, yeah, whatever. If you don't go down there, you're going to die. Think about it like that. See, nobody thinks about like having a job is means life or death, but that's the way it kind of was back in the day. That's the way I read that first paragraph. I was like, holy moly, that's tough. But then he goes on, he talks about how like, because you're never going to be able to raise these children, they'll starve and die. You're not going to, you just won't even have children to begin with. He was basically saying that the village would never grow in population, not in a thousand years because of this. And I thought about that for a second. I'm like, whoa, just for the simple fact that if you can't work, you can't eat. And if you can't eat, you're going to die. And the population would never grow because of that. You better hope that you have a trade that's in demand. Or that you know how or that you have skills that are in demand of some sort. Now I think about that. That's crazy. See, he's talking about the girls who could craft something during the times when they're not in the field. So now I thought about that for a second. I'm like, man, life was so tough back then that even like, you know, the women like he was if if you were a girl, you were gonna be working in the fields, you were going to be creating food because there wasn't a safe way. And so while I guess the men were out being tradesmen, the women were at home or in the fields, working the fields. And if they weren't doing that, then they could be creating, knitting, and doing other things, which they could sell. But it wouldn't be enough in proportion, in, in enough to 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 raise the children, to so basically you know provide for them. So that was something very interesting to think about. It's just like man, the population could not grow if you cannot find a trade, if you cannot find a life that can support you and your family. See, I think about the way people live right now, and that's and it's hugely different. People just don't have that mindset at all. Um, now, the way Cantillon kind of describes the uh, the amount of demand for a trade, and he, it's kind of interesting because he talks about it in the form of tailors, right? And these tailors. So if you can imagine a tailor who is like overwhelmed with business and he has three sons and he trains his three sons to be tailors. And now the village is now supported. Like before he was overwhelmed with work, everybody was like in shambles. They can, you know, they were just all walking around in racks. But now that his three sons have grown up and they're all making clothing, everybody is like, you know, like just walking around looking sharp. And because this village is now running around looking sharp, Another tailor says, man, this you know village has a pretty good business for for clothing. He moves in. But the village was just enough that it was, or had a, was large enough that it could support exactly four tailors. And when the fifth one moves in, although some of the business can go to them, they all end up suffering from it. Because the village can only support so much demand. Or the demand for tailors is only so much. And so what ends up happening is the, as the rest of them suffer. So, there are going to be times when there is like no work. Like you can imagine the circumstances change. Imagine a bunch of carpenters. Like okay, so there's a village that's really expanding. You know, they're like all of a sudden they became like a port, or whatever. They just a lot of people are are moving there, and they're expanding and they need a lot of homes constructed. And so carpenters start moving in and there's a lot of carpenters in the area because they have a lot of construction taking place. But then the village gets to a point where it expands to the point where it's just like, well, we really have gotten to the point where we don't really getting any bigger here and the need for carpenters really drops off. They don't need as many carpenters in the area. So these carpenters, if they don't have any work to go, they're going to have to just leave altogether or suffer the consequences of it. If they do leave, They'll leave into the point that is proportional for what the demand is. So, like, if the place is flooded with carpenters, then carpenters are going to be bailing out of town, and they're going to bail out of town until there's so many of them that have left that the ones who are remaining are now able to find gainful employment being in the village because most of the carpenters have left. So circumstances change, and the demand for that particular position changes as with it. Now. Cantillon goes on to talk about education in this. And this is really where I find a lot of similarity to what's taking place right now. Because what he talks about is schools to increase artisans are useless. And I thought to myself, man, did he ever think he hit it? Because what happens when everybody has a degree and you're swimming in a sea of degrees? That degree doesn't really help you much, does it? Same thing. If you're sitting there as a carpenter in a sea of other carpenters, being a carpenter doesn't really help. And so, way he explained it was is with, like, if a nation, like, you got to think this is back in the day of the 1700s. So he used 100,000 people. But if a nation sent 100,000 people to go become seafarers, when they came back, only so many seafarers are going to be employed. The rest of them are going to have this useless knowledge that they don't use. They're going to have to find some other kind of gainful employment or suffer so they will have gone and learned to be a seafarer but they will not use it and so you can't force this because the demand for these particular trades will have the trades naturally showing up to do it you don't have if you try to force it it won't work like he does they do make a bit of a reference that if a nation was to train their people to produce things that were exported like the things that other nations want to buy then the idea of pushing training into the people would not be the same. But what he was talking about is a state in, in reference to itself. Just like, you know, if you were going to gain some knowledge and just be like self-sufficient, not necessarily trying to export out to other nations. And that's where he is saying, like, it's, it's pretty much useless to try and push this knowledge, to try and push like this trades into the people because... You don't know what, I mean, the demand for that particular trade changes all the time. So you don't know what it is that the people are going to need to know at the time that they need to know it. That is all free market taking place, which I thought was a really interesting, you know, point to it too. So anyway, I think that was the majority of that one. Uneducated economist. You guys let me know. Good afternoon everybody, uneducated economist here. Thought I'd cover another chapter out of Cantillon's essay on economic theory. This was the essay written back in the 1700s and we are now on chapter 10 which is titled, The Price and Intrinsic Value of Things in General is the measurement of the land and labor which enter into its production. Now intrinsic value, this is something that I have heard quite a bit and people have asked me to explain intrinsic value and I would just simply answer it. It's the amount of time and effort that goes into into making whatever it is that the product that you're referring to. And so a lot of times you'll hear people say silver has intrinsic value. Well, there was time, labor, effort, something went into the production of silver. That's the intrinsic value of it. But when you listen to Cantillon explain the intrinsic value, it really it really gives you the idea of what something has as far as the value when it comes to the time and effort, right? Because what somebody's willing to pay for is far different. An artist could spend, you know, a thousand hours on their piece of art, but may only get a thousand dollars for it. So they earn a dollar an hour for their art. The intrinsic value is the time and effort that went into creating the item and the market value is something very different. So, the way Cantillon explains it is that if you had like two acres of land, equally proportioned, equal, I mean, equally like in circumstances, what I should say, not proportion, but equally in, in circumstance, in the sense that the labor that went into it, the production that comes from it would be pretty much identical, then the intrinsic value of the wheat would be the same. Same thing if it was wool or anything else. Now, when he describes it inside of wool, like you got two acres, it can only produce so much wool. Like you got max production, you know, the sheep need to eat or whatever. There can only eat so much, or there's only so much land there to raise sheep on, so you're only going to be able to produce so much wool. The wool coming off of one acre, as opposed to the acre right next to it, is the same. There's no difference to it. The intrinsic value is identical. But then as you start to process that wool, if you refine it into a coarse cloth, The way Cantillon describes it, it's going to sell for one price, but if you keep refining it and making it finer and finer and finer until you're able to, you know, make it into a great suit of clothing, then you can get five, 10, 15 times, who knows how much more for it. For every time the labor goes into that piece of cloth, the intrinsic value is starting to rise, which in turn creates a market value for it. Now... What is interesting is that when he talks about just the labor of things, and this is something that I hadn't thought about. It was kind of like a side note. After I read it, I was like, wow, isn't that interesting? And what he was describing as far as just labor as being the intrinsic value is that he talks about a river. And if you were to dip that a jug into the river and try and sell the water that came out of that, it would be almost impossible. There's nobody who's going to give you any money for a jug of water. That's dipped right into the river where they can just go get the water themselves. The supply is so vast that it pretty much makes it useless but then if you dip that jug of water or dip that jug into the water and then carry it into the middle of the city where you can then sell it because there's a demand for water then the intrinsic value comes from the water carrier the actual effort it took to carry the water into the city and that's why the water now has this intrinsic value to it is because it was brought to a different location where there is no water Now, the market value will be much different. And this is where he describes market value being different from intrinsic value. So if you can imagine, like, this intrinsic value is the time and effort and labor and land that went into production of it. But then the market value can be very different. So if the farmer, like, planted far too much wheat, and now there's an abundance of wheat, right? It's the same time, effort, land, labor, everything that went into creating this wheat. It was just so much of it that the market doesn't have that much demand for this much wheat and so the price that the farmer will get for his wheat and every all the rest of the farmers who grew wheat around them <clears throat> because of that abundance will fall same on the opposite end if they don't produce enough same land same labor same effort that went into it, it's the same intrinsic value but if you do not produce enough of it then the market value of it goes goes up and you're able to sell it for more than what the intrinsic value is See, if the, farmer, if the farmers grew exactly the right amount of wheat, like perfect. They, they planted exactly amount so that by the time they went from one harvest to the other, they ran out exactly the day they harvested again. That would be like perfect. The intrinsic value would be the market value. But that's not the way it works. So intrinsic value is going to be different from the market value. And then he goes on to explain it like what just you can put both time and effort into something and have the intrinsic value behind it. And he was kind of talking like a garden. Like if you you know, work in a garden, you could just sit there and just put labor into the entire time and create a garden. But then you can also add other things to it and build within this garden and create something that is very big and beautiful and useful. And you'd be able to sell that. Now, whether or not you are going to get your intrinsic value... Is or whether the market value is going to meet your intrinsic value, like the time, the effort, the material that you put into building this thing, whether that is matched by the market is very questionable. So you may be in a position in which that you have built this garden and you're able to sell it for twice as much. But then you could also be in a position where you built this garden up and you can't get the the money for the garden that went into the material that built it. And you think about this when it comes to like construction. So the intrinsic value of something, it's the amount of time and effort and labor that went into it, the land, labor and effort. That's the intrinsic value, which is not the same as the market value, which is what somebody is willing to pay you for. it. Great chapter. I love that one. Intrinsic value. Uneducated economist, you guys let me know.